All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. we got a fantastic Monday morning show for you, including the breaking news out of Washington at this hour. House Democrats have now formally introduced another article of impeachment against U.S. President Donald Trump, accusing the president of inciting an insurrection. We have got fantastic guests on that story at the bottom of this hour. David Frum the former speechwriter for U.S. President George W. Bush will be along with his analysis. Also, Kevin Vickers. Remember him? The former sergeant-at-arms of the House of Commons in Ottawa. People will remember his heroic role in stopping an active shooter on Parliament Hill back in 2014. David Vickers, he was awarded the, or Kevin Vickers, he was awarded the Star of Courage for his actions that day. Really interested to get his take on the storming of the U.S. Capitol. Kevin Vickers later this hour. But first, we start with the deadly gang warfare seething on the streets of Metro Vancouver. Multiple deadly shootings in the last two weeks as rival gangs wage war. We've got some great guests standing by on that. But first, have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Grace Key. The latest shooting victim in the Lower Mainland's ongoing gang conflict has been identified as Dilraj Johal. Just before midnight, Richmond RCMP were called to the 8100 block of Lansdowne Road, where they found Johal's body inside a suite, killed by apparent gunfire. Neighbors were shocked to hear it was a targeted killing. Yeah, it's really scary. We thought that Richmond is a safe place to live. But it seems not anymore. And another shooting, this time in Coquitlam in the 1400 block of Kingston Street. About 1 a.m., police found a man with gunshot wounds. Multiple suspects sped away in a car. The victim survived. Police believe the shooting is related to a car fire reported soon after in the 3100 block of Gislison Avenue. A bullet was spotted on the road at that scene. It's unclear if the shooting is related to gang conflict. In the past two weeks, there have been five gang-related fatal shootings in the Lower Mainland. On Thursday, 29-year-old Anis Mohammed was shot at Steveston Park. Wednesday, Gary Kang was shot in a South Surrey family home. On December 27th and 28th, 19-year-old Herman Singh Desi and Takel Willis, just 14 years old, were also killed, both in Surrey. There is good momentum on each of our cases that we are working and investigating. We will continue to work with our close partners from Richmond RCMP, as well as CFSUBC, and our regional policing partners to share information and help mitigate any further violence. Police say they will be stepping up gang suppression patrols and will continue to work with various agencies in an effort to put an end to the ongoing gang violence. Grace Key, Global News. Okay, my thanks to Grace Key for that report. Five deadly shootings in the last two weeks. Let's talk about this gang war now with my guest, Hillary Morden, a PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University. She is a gang researcher, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hillary, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for asking me on. Okay, we see this spasm of deadly gun violence here over the last two weeks. We've seen this these come and go. They seem to sort of go like the, the tide in and out. So we're, right now we seem at the height of a, of a gang war. Is that what's going on? Is a gang war going on right now? Um, is it going on now? Is it always going on? Yeah. I, I see this as just an, the, the Vancouver scene when it comes to gangs. What, think of it as um, 
like a volcano. You know how when all the hot lava comes down and some of it's glowing and every so often there's a burst of flame? That's that's our gang situation. The rivalries, the anger, the disrespect back and forth, the taunts, the jousting, that that's an always thing. But then something happens to disturb the environment, and you'll see a spate of this. We saw this back in September. What was there, seven shootings in or something? We saw it in 2017, a series of them. We saw it, you know, a decade before that. So this is this is our normal, I guess. I hate to call it a normal gangs, but it is a normal. Something disturbs the environment okay. in the game. Okay, and we got a, we got a um, we got a a weak connection here with you. Um, so we'll try and clean we'll try and clean that up. We just we just got some crackling going on on the line there, Hillary. But let, let me ask you this. The shooting of Gary Kang seems to have been kind of a, a turning point in in this gang war that we're seeing right now. What gang? Who was this guy? And which gangs are involved here? Which gangs are fighting each other here? Okay, uh, uh, okay, this is uh, p- probably a little bit complex, but what you have is you have in Vancouver you have our main gangs, um, and then you have affiliates of the main gangs, and then you have associates, and they're not always um, on each other's side that's stable. So we have the Brothers Keepers are heavily involved, and they're a newish group that sort of emerged with violence in 2017 and started to fight with everybody. Uh, they fought with Hells Angels, they fought with Wolfpack, UN, Red Scorpions, all of them. But there's been some alliances formed over the last couple of years, and it seems to be settling down to... Uh, Brothers Keepers, Wolfpack, Hells Angels have kind of moved together, as we saw with Red Scorpions and Hells Angels back in 2012, 2009 to 12, where we were starting to see that they were having talks. We were starting to find members together in vehicles. In fact, when uh, Jonathan Bacon was shot, there was a Hells Angel, a Wolfpack, or sorry, a Hells Angel, an independent soldier, and um, Jonathan, who was aligned with Red Scorpions, in the same vehicle in that shooting. We're seeing that again now. So, so what happens is you get a new player in the field, they fight with everybody, and then alliances start to be formed, and that's what we're seeing here. So, as I said, on the one side, you've got Brothers Keepers, and then those who are aligned with Hells Angels group. And on the other side, you've got the Red Scorpions, Blood In, Blood Out, um, Kang group, and they're moving into the other side. But we also have a number of players who are aligned with Brothers Keepers, who have now moved to rival. And so when you see that, there's always a fear that those individuals may have information that is, uh, makes the other group vulnerable, and so then, of course, they're going to get targeted. And we, we have seen that. That's exactly what, what has happened recently. There's been a number of men who were associated with high-level Brothers Keepers, but who then moved across to um, 
they're rivals. Right. right. These, is this the usual? Often when we hear these gang wars, you hear it described as a fight over, over drug turf. This is a turf war over drug dealing. But it sounds to me like sometimes it gets it just gets personal, too. I mean, you have people changing alliances. You have people taking retribution. Someone's brother was killed. So you get another shooting in, in retaliation for that. So is it really kind of like a personal uh, war against individuals? Or is there also a dis- is there also a dispute over turf? Um, it is a combination of um, interference and interdiction that destabilizes gangs. So that's, that would be the police work, Then, because that creates power vacuums sometimes. Then you've got the group. You know, I, I am with the red group, so I hate everybody who's in the blue group. Then you have the personal and um, it, it, gangs are honor cultures, which means that no disrespect can be left out there. If somebody disrespects you significantly enough, then you have to retaliate or you're nobody or you're less of a man or you just you're not powerful enough. Hillary, it's always amazing to talk to you with your insight uh, on the internecine fighting going on here among these gangs. You're one of the best experts around. Thanks a lot for coming on once again today. You're welcome. We will not go quietly into the night. And we need to march on the Capitol today. We are going to take our country back. We're coming for you, and we're going to have a good time doing it. Let's have trial by combat. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength. We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you to the Capitol. Okay, welcome back to the show. Of course, those are the sounds last Wednesday morning in the run-up to the siege of the U.S. Capitol there. You heard a lot of voices there, including Donald Trump Jr. You heard Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer there. He was the one calling for trial by combat. And, of course, you heard the president himself uh, telling his followers they're going to march to Congress. And he said you had to show strength. Of course, we all know what happened in the hours following that sound, those sound clips. We saw the siege and storming of the U.S. Capitol, five people dead in the aftermath. And now another article of impeachment introduced this morning in Congress against President Donald Trump. Let's talk about all of this now with my guest, David Frum, a political commentator. He's a former speechwriter for U.S. President George W. Bush. His book is Trump Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thank you for coming on again. So glad to join. Okay, so we have the article of impeachment uh, introduced in Congress this morning by the Democrats. Why impeach Trump again? Do you think this is the right thing to do? Let's understand for a minute what exactly happened on the 6th of January and why it happened. I mean, the idea, the, the day was so crazy that I think a lot of people have difficulty absorbing what President Trump had in mind. So everybody knows Americans vote on the first Tuesday in November. Everybody knows that there's this kind of formality that happens in the middle of December where the Electoral College meets in the states. And it's usually a, you know, a day where people take a lot of pictures of themselves, um, enjoy some ceremony, go for lunch. Um, and, the, uh, and that formalizes the vote. Right. Then in January, and this is the merest formality, uh, Congress receives the Electoral College vote from the states and ratifies it in an in a ancient ceremony. Not some, nothing is supposed to happen. There's no election. There's no choice. President Trump took it into his head that if he could interfere with the registration of the vote by Congress on the 6th of January, 
or if he could coerce somehow his vice president, who presided over it, to stop the count, he could stay on as president. Um, and so what he was mobilizing all these people to do on the 6th of January was to intimidate Congress, maybe force Congress, maybe even abduct his own vice president and force them to somehow stop the count and thus keep him as president. Um, that's why this is so serious. It wasn't just oh, things got out of hand. There was, I mean, a wacky, stupid, unworkable, but still plan to seize control of the government of the United States and make Donald Trump by force the winner of an election that he lost. The article of impeachment introduced in Congress this morning, David, accuses Trump of inciting an insurrection. Uh, Trump has only got eight days left in office, though. Is there any is there enough time to impeach him? Well, he'll be impeached on Wednesday. Um, he can certainly be. Um, if there's an, yes, there's enough time to remove him. The Senate could meet and vote. There is no. Yeah. They can do it by whatever rules. Yeah. It's also true that there are precedents in American history for trying an impeachment after the person leaves office. That uh, there are cases in the 19th century where someone quit his job to avoid being impeached for corruption, and the the Senate said, "We don't care that you resign. We're still impeaching you because one or." removing this one of the penalties that can be attached to an impeachment and a removal trial is a ban on ever seeking any office again right. in the united states right uh speaking of that let me play this here for you david and get your reaction this is nancy pelosi of course the, the speaker and she was in conversation with 60 minutes yesterday and here she is talking to 60 minutes reporter leslie stahl about the impeachment and listen carefully what nancy pelosi has to say here what if he pardons himself what if he pardons these people who are terrorists on the Capitol? Or pardons himself. He can only pardon himself from federal offenses. He cannot pardon himself from state offenses, and that's where he's being uh, investigated in the state of New York. There is a possibility that after all of this, there's no punishment, no consequence, and he could run again for president. And that's one of the motivations that people have for advocating for impeachment. Okay, yeah, Nancy Pelosi making the same point that you just made a moment ago, David, saying that if you do, if you can successfully impeach the president, he would not be allowed to run again. So does that mean that four years from now, and he's hinted at possibly trying to seek the Republican nomination again, he would not be allowed to do that? Yeah, I I mean, I think he will not have much chance. I think as people, as Americans absorb the magnitude of what he did, I want to pick up what you said. You quoted the the article of impeachment said he incited an insurrection. Yeah. Now, why did they use la- that language? Um, if insurrection is not a fancy word for riot. I mean, if your sports team loses and the mayor of the town goes out in front of an angry crowd and says, we were cheated of the title, we deserve to win, and the people go out and trash the town, that's a riot. The mayor is not trying to change reality. He's just getting, he's, he's giving people permission to be violent. What Donald Trump was doing, he was not just giving them permission to be violent. He was actually trying to change the outcome of an election and hold on to presidential power himself. An insurrection is a rebellion. It's an attempt to seize political power by violence. And that's what Donald Trump was doing. Of course, to confirm an impeachment, you need a two-thirds vote in the Senate. And the Republicans have got 50% of those Senate seats. There appears to be some Republicans now wavering in their support for the president in the aftermath of what we saw last week. Is it possible, is it even remotely possible that enough Republicans could flip in the Senate to actually uh, endorse, to confirm the impeachment? It seems unlikely, but I'll tell you one reason I think 
and as someone who remains active in Republican politics and remains a registered Republican, if this party is ever going to rebuild after Trumpism, we need to be able to point back to people who did the right thing um, in, in the Trump years and be able to say, we need our children to be able to say, I'm not a Republican like Donald Trump. I'm a Republican like Mitt Romney. Or to be able to say, if Pat Toomey does the right thing, I'm a Republican in the tradition of Pat Toomey. We need a tradition of Republicanism, who, of Republicans who stood up on this day. And so we're against yeah. overthrowing the government of the United States. That's going to be a powerful resource for the next generation as they rebuild this country that has been so corrupted by Donald Trump. What do you think was going through the minds of some of these people as they stormed in, into the Capitol building? I mean, we're seeing some viral videos here in the last 48 hours or so or of people who are discovering that they're on a no-fly list now as they're investigated and charged for, for their role in storming the Capitol. Uh, and some people seem to be shocked and upset uh, that they're, they're facing these accusations now. What do you think was going through the minds of these people when they did this? Well, I think many of your listeners can imagine that in this age of COVID. I mean, we all have relatives who hold absolutely wacky COVID beliefs, or most of us do. Um, what do they think? Um, I mean, they, I mean, they're functional people. They can, you know, tie their shoelaces. They can drive a car. Um, you know, they can find their way from the bedroom to the bathroom. Um, they can, you know, they're not demented, uh, but they clearly, they are detached from reality. And I think a lot of the people thought that they were going to somehow turn the election around, save things for Donald Trump. And they, they didn't understand you pick up weapons and attack the capital of the United States, that's got consequences for you. I mean, you, you know, uh, uh, we've had rebellions in the United States before the Civil War. You get, you get tracked down. Um, you're, if you want to do a Timothy McVeigh here, you're going to end up in prison. Mm. They didn't, a lot of these people did seem to think of this as a kind of party where you can, you can kill cops, you can try to um, hang the Speaker of the House of Representatives, you can try to kidnap the Vice President, and it's going to be fine. You're going to have a video clip. And you take a picture of yourself while you do it. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, Republicans now, uh, history might remember who stood up and who criticized Trump at the time. And you, you are certainly among the very prominent Republicans who has been a very consistent critic of the president. Another one is Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I find very interesting, the former Republican governor of California. And I'm sure you've seen the video that he recorded has gone viral here in the last 24 hours. Uh, going after Trump. Let me play this here for you, David. Get your take. Here is uh, Schwarzenegger on this, his vi uh, this viral video. Now, I grew up in Austria. I'm very aware of Kristallnacht, or the night of broken glass. It was a night of rampage against the Jews carried out in 1938 by the Nazi equivalent of the Proud Boys. Wednesday was the day of broken glass right here in the United States. The broken glass was in the windows of the United States Capitol. But the mob did not just shatter the windows of the Capitol. They shattered the ideals we took for granted. Do you think that there is a valid uh, parallel there between uh, when he brings up the, the Nazis and Kristallnacht and what happened on Wednesday? Um, thank God, no. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, what happened in 1938 was actually, this, it wasn't just a criminal gang that executed the Kristallnacht. It was people acting on behalf of a head of state, Hitler was then the head of the German and the Austrian state, um, who had no checks on him. What Don Donald Trump is about to discover is there are still a lot of checks on him, and that Congress is in session, and that the government is not just the president, it's also the Congress, um, and the people who uh, attack the government um, are going to find themselves, um, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them, charged with crimes and serving penalties. That didn't happen in 1938. It's going to happen this time. David, it's always great to have you on. Thank you for taking the time today. Pleasure to talk. 
All right, welcome back to the show. You know that old saying, you can't fight City Hall. Well, can you fight a distracted driving ticket and win? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you get a distracted driving ticket, in some cases, you can't fight it. You can't win. Check this case out here now. A guy named Ryan Michael Blow from Campbell River, B.C., This is a key court case. He got rung up on a distracted driving charge. He went to court. He fought and won. He fought the law and he won. Let's talk about this case now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, criminal lawyer with Acumen Law. He specializes in driving law. Paul, welcome back. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Okay, this is a really interesting case because it really centers on one that I've always found very confusing about how you can use your phone with with Bluetooth connectivity if you're listening to music with Bluetooth. And does the phone have to be firmly affixed or securely affixed or attached to the vehicle and, and not sitting in, in a cup holder or whatever? Can you, basic, can you tell me the, what happened in this case? Sure. This is an interesting one because the guy gets in his vehicle, he starts his podcast, then he throws his phone in the cup holder, and the podcast is being broadcast through his, his sound system in his vehicle. And he drives all the way to work, doesn't touch his phone the whole time there, uh, and uh, is stopped and issued this ticket because he's using his device, despite the fact that it's connected to the vehicle, and it's loose in his cup holder. So had it been right. you know, firmly fixed in his cup holder, if you'd stuck some napkins there to, uh, to hold it in place, then it wouldn't have been loose. So that was a, oh. a funny distinction there on the loose. But the court looked at it. And, this, you know, it's a, it's a fairly interesting case, and it starts to really, once again, expose the fact that it's so hard to understand what this legislation intends to mean. The court looked uh, at, there's a definition of use, and it says you can't use it, and then it says there's a definition of operate, and you can't operate it. And the judge basically came to the conclusion that a reasonable person would, and that is that it's kind of absurd that, you know, you can't, uh, you can't, have it just playing in the background where you're not touching it, right? Um, yeah. And because you're not operating it, you're not, you know, you're using it, but you're not operating it. And so instead of looking at it as sort of a cumulative thing where you're prohibited from use, you're prohibited from operating, you're prohibited, he kind of turned it around and said, you know, this, these are defining different types of ways that you can use it. And, you know, if you're not, touching it you're not really operating it if you're not you know activating features on it as you're you know moving you're not really operating it you start your podcast before you drive right you know could you have your phone in your briefcase you know Mm -hmm. it would be absurd to suggest that that would be something that the that the government intended to prohibit you having it in your in your gym bag uh playing your podcast through your your uh uh bluetooth in your in your car so ultimately came to the conclusion that, no, this is not, he wasn't operating it. Uh, and we're not right. going to apply the, the definition of use in this case. Right. So the guy, his phone was loosely held loosely in the cup holder, which I guess is a technical violation of the law. But the judge was not, the ju- this judge was not standing for it. And the judge threw, threw the ticket out, correct? Yeah. 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 It's been turfed and now the law has been changed. Is, okay. So is that a key precedent here? Undistracted well, yeah, driving. Yeah, because there's going to be lots of there's lots of circumstances. Look, police officers used to issue tickets to people whenever they saw it in a cup holder because it wasn't in a, a fixed mount, even if you weren't right. using it. Uh, and then you know the cup holder cases have come and gone. Uh, I guess this is the final nail in the coffin of the cup holder cases. Uh, you know the laws changed all the time. There's been lots of police officers who have issued them uh, to people. Oh, you're using your phone. 
you're, you're, you know, even if you're playing a podcast, if it's sitting there loose in your vehicle, well, no, that's not the definition. I mean, you, so, you if it's sitting on your passenger seat, you're not, you're not operating it. Right. Uh, you know. So <laughs> does that no mean? That. Does that mean that I can therefore now listen to music or a podcast or whatever on my phone, maybe using Bluetooth connectivity to my speaker system in my vehicle? I'm allowed to do that now, even if the phone is not securely attached or fixed to the vehicle. Even if, it's like it say, like you said, if it's sitting in the in the passenger seat, that's okay now. I can't. I won't get run 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 up with a ticket on that now. Well, I mean, you might get issued well, a ticket, but you got a great defense, right? Yeah. So, because there's this court case, so you you probably shouldn't be ticketed in those circumstances now. But there is an important distinction there. It still talks about Bluetooth, right? You can't use the speaker on your phone. My iPhone now has such a great speaker. You know, the sound is fantastic. And I could use my speaker. I drive my old truck, right? Uh, I could use my speaker uh, because I don't have Bluetooth in that truck. Uh, but that's illegal. You know, that is still illegal for me to use the speaker so on the phone. <laughs> so I can't use the speaker on the phone, but you can use the speaker in your vehicle through the phone by Bluetooth. Correct? Exactly. Correct. Oh, man. I don't know. I mean, is that the, is that the next one to get challenged in court? I don't think that one's going to be challenged. Again, I think that, you know, eventually uh, Mike Farnworth is going to have to sit down with his legislation, take a look at all the different court decisions, uh, and come up with a clear statement of the law. Because if you go onto ICBC's website, you can find all sorts of assertions there of things you're not allowed to do with your phone that are inconsistent with the court cases at this point. Um, You know, because the the court has has looked at this and and sort of eliminated the absurd. yeah, the the that holding no matter what if you're holding your phone even if it's dead uh, has no battery power in it or is disabled or is broken uh, you know that is sufficient to found a ticket so whatever right. you do never hold your phone uh, but uh, and if you're going to be operating your phone in other words if you have to uh, do one button uh, operation of it uh, it's got to be firmly mounted it can't just be loose in a cup holder if it's firmly mounted in a cup holder it's probably okay. Uh, but uh, you can have it loose uh, using, uh, you know, a Bluetooth feature so long as you're not, quote-unquote, operating it. Okay. Tell me, Paul, about the uh, breathalyzer manufacturer and the the controversy around the mouthpiece on a breathalyzer. What's that about? Well, this is a, another very interesting thing. So back in March, uh, when, of course, we went into quasi-lockdown, I was flying back from Ohio from a conference. And I was thinking, and I was actually, you know, the manufacturer has a factory in Ohio. Uh, but I was thinking about these breath uh, testers that we've got at the roadside and the, and the, the concern about uh, contracting a pathogen, getting COVID from providing a sample because somebody else had uh, blown into it with COVID. And here you are after the fact. And if all you have to do is suck something off of it, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, so started discussing it. And then the manufacturer put a big uh, uh, like 25 page PDF on their website telling police how to clean these devices uh, and conceding the fact that you can't clean parts of it and that there is a risk. Now the old device we used to have, the AlcoSensor 4 DWF, had a one-way valve so you couldn't suck back and it vented out of the back of the device. Now, you may remember back in 2014, I went public with problems with that device. Uh, That was all over the news for a little bit of time. Then they were all pulled from service and replaced with a different device in 2015. Unfortunately, the device they replaced it with doesn't have a one-way valve, 
and it vents out the top, basically into the face of the police officer who's using it. So I put some videos online on my YouTube channel to explain the problem, you know, the, the danger, the risk that this poses in a COVID world. And then the manufacturer pulled down those cleaning instructions. Presumably wow. they were concerned about liability issues. Well, now they've released a new mouthpiece. Um, and the new mouthpiece is, uh, has a one-way valve in it. It mounts onto the old mouthpiece. Uh, and it uh, also has an electrostatic filter, which is the same thing as in an N95 mask. And they, they're recommending that this be used, uh, and they're basically conceding the fact that for all of these months, uh, people have been at risk using these devices. Uh, every time the police, you know, test somebody at a roadblock, uh, there's a concern. There's a concern, concerns that I didn't identify. So what, uh, is this, what does this mean then for the enforcement of uh, impaired driving laws in B.C.? Well, this has been a real problem because a lot of people have been refusing, especially if they have some underlying health concern. When they're there at the roadside, the police officers often have not been masked. They're using this device over and over and over. Of course, they're using a new mouthpiece, but that mouthpiece is exposed to the internal components of the device, right? So all you have to do is, while you're blowing, and a lot of people lose their breath as they're blowing, you know, inhale a little bit off of it, and you could get something from it. And this has been a a concern, and a lot of people have refused. And of course, refusing in Canada, uh, you're facing a criminal charge, a two thousand dollar fine, and a criminal record, and a one year driving prohibition. Uh, if the matter goes to court, if it's dealt with at the roadside, it's a ninety day immediate roadside prohibition, and you know thousands of dollars worth of consequences. So, you know, <laughs> this is the manufacturer conceding that the devices are not safe in the current. Uh, situation that they are. They're trying to, of course, sell their new mouthpiece. Uh, the police in BC, as far as we know, have not got these new mouthpieces and are still using the old mouthpieces. You know, I've been calling for months uh, for the government to revisit their, uh, their, their method here that they've been employing because right. in BC, we use these devices more than anywhere in the world because okay. when you're pulled over in BC, you're compelled to blow and you're usually blowing into two different devices. So you double the risk. Okay, so if, if someone is stopped at a road check, it's still you're still in great jeopardy if you refuse a, a breathalyzer, give a breath sample. Yeah, I mean, the law, yeah. the law is that you are compelled by the criminal code to provide a sample if it's yeah. a lawful demand from a police officer. Okay. Uh, you know, and you're not in a position to make the determination as to whether or not it's a lawful demand. That's something that's usually resolved in court or, you know, your lawyer in the tribunal. All right, welcome back. Talking about driving law in British Columbia with my guest, lawyer Paul Doroshenko. Your call's to him now, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Kelly and Burnaby. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Hi there, go ahead. Um, yeah, hi, Mike, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was driving under the train bridge in Poco, toward downtown Poco, stopped at a light. Uh, plugged my phone into the charger, and the police had set up on the train bridge, and they were pulling people over just constantly. Um, I told the officer that I just plugged my phone in. That doesn't matter. I fought it, went to court, and I won. Oh, um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, there were several people there, and I think probably with from the same day that I was there, and uh, a lot of them were just released without question. What did you tell the uh, judge? Uh, I just told him that I plugged my phone in and I wasn't using my phone and I'm I use hands free. I'm always hands free. And he let you walk. Yep. Okay, Paul. What do you think of that? 
there was some confusion for a period of time about whether or not you could be uh, using plugging your phone in using uh, and uh, this new decision basically says uh, confirms that plugging your phone in uh, is is likely an offense of course but that wasn't oh, yeah. the that wasn't the central issue so he might have been in that nice little sweet window where we weren't sure whether or not that was that was something that committed an offense don't plug your phone in uh, no, just no. leave your phone. Just leave your phone. Don't Pull touch over, it. Stop. Put your car in park. Make sure you're lawfully parked. Then plug your phone in. Yeah. Do not touch the phone because that's you're just asking for it. Especially uh, if, if you're near a. You know, he, this guy says he got caught at a bridge, Paul, or sometimes it's at an intersection. But that's where the cops catch you on this type of thing, right? Well, I mean, they can catch you all over the place. Just don't yeah. commit the offense, right? Yeah. Just don't do it. I mean, for sure. <laughs> yeah. John and Langley. Hi, John. Hi, Paul. Uh, I have two questions, so bear with me. One's a picture question. Does the uh, CarPlay and Google Car Apps uh, fall under regulatory Transport Canada or U.S. Department of Transport, for example, regulate uh, like you do any other in-dash guidelines for things that navigate or or operate the car, help assist operate the car driver? Okay, there's going to be another point to that question you're going to ask me after this, uh, no matter what I answer. (laughs) But I will tell you that... uh, uh, you know, the federal government, Transport Canada, looks at vehicles and considers safety, and it's completely separate from the provincial legislation uh, that uh, that governs uh, use of electronic devices. So electronic devices are governed because it's a handheld thing. Uh, what's fixed in your car is fixed in your car. You can take that up with the federal government if you've got a problem with that. Okay, you got something else, John? That's okay. we got to move on anyway. Let's go to Jennifer and Burnaby. Hi, Jennifer. Hey there. Um, I just wanted to mention, it might be something to think about uh, for everybody who gets a courtesy car. Remember to take your uh, phone device out of your car before you get into the courtesy car and put it in the courtesy car because I'm so used to just having it on me that when I was driving the courtesy car around, um, I had no holder. And so I put my phone on the passenger seat yep. with my Google map. And oh boy. Uh, when I was driving, it moved. It got wedged underneath a book that I had. I couldn't see it anymore. I didn't have the voice prompt on. And um, I waited for a red light to bring it back to where I could view it and hit the screen it uncentered, and I had to just hit it once to recenter it, and I got nabbed. You got caught. Yeah. How much? How much was the fine? Um, the top. Sorry, I don't remember what it was. How much but... is? How much is the fine, Paul? Yeah, you're typically three hundred sixty-eight bucks. Ooh, yeah, that's yeah. tough. The uh, it, it is one that you can go to court and you can ask for a fine reduction. Uh, not every offense can you do that, but uh, electronic device tickets, you can do that. It's surprising how often people get into, quite literally, the courtesy car, uh, the vehicle that they're not accustomed to driving, and so they don't have the setup, and they think, I'm just going to take the risk this time, uh, and there you have it. Let's squeeze in one more less in the Noose Bay, but you got to go quick. we only got a minute. All right. Um, uh, if you want to fight a speeding ticket to show up in court, 90% of the time the police don't show up and they'll throw it out. Uh, Is that true? Is that true, Paul? Is it, no, it's, about, it's about six percent of the time, and it's usually in uh, in August uh, when the police are being dispatched all over the province because of forest fires. Uh, the police get disciplined if they don't show up. Most of the time, they do show up. Uh, they, there are occasions that they don't, but you never rely on that 
Yeah. You show up and the police uh, officers there, a lot of them, it's fish in a barrel for them, uh, you know, prosecuting these things. Paul, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccine now and the rollout of the vaccine in Canada has been slow for a lot of people and a lot of people wondering, when will I get the shot? When will I get the vaccine? Well, now you can go online and use an online calculator that will give you an estimate of when you might expect to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. It's called the Vaccine Calculator for Canada. I just checked it out myself. It asks you a few simple questions about your age and your occupation, and then it gives you an estimate of when you might expect to get the vaccine. I just did it myself. It said maybe I might get it between July and September of this year, which is kind of what I figured uh, would be the case. But if you're wondering, it's certainly something to check out. Let's check in now with Jasmine Ma. She is a web content developer for Omni Calculators, and she helped develop this online tool. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. It's a very interesting online tool. Uh, people can find it easily. I just found it. Just If you just Google online vaccine calculator Canada, it pops right up in a, in a Google search. Can you tell me how this uh, how this works? Right. So, yeah, just like you said, go to Google, type in Vaccine Calculator Canada. It should come up right away at OmniCalculator.com. Whether you're on your phone or on your computer, you're going to see a bunch of questions uh, like your age. um, Are you a health worker? Are you living in an Indigenous community? Um, Are you an essential worker? And so you're going to answer these simple questions, and then we're going to give you basic estimate of you know as a nation overall how many people would be in front of you um what stage you fall in and yeah the estimated time right how uh how accurate is it would you say so it's very general it's very general and the most important thing to consider is that this calculator is a best case scenario um situation So the numbers we got from the government, the estimate that, oh, we'll have vaccines for Canadians, all Canadians by, you know, the end of the third quarter or by September, that estimate assumes that all of the vaccines we've ordered go through the clinical trials successfully and that they are approved and then all the vaccines are delivered on time. So any, any delay there, it can cause more delays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of variables there for sure that can affect the uh, the timing of when people might get the vaccine. I imagine you're you're seeing some pretty steady traffic on the calculator online because there's so much there's so much interest in this, and a lot of people out there are wondering when am I going to get this shot. Are, so are you seeing a lot of people checking checking out your calculator? Yeah, my latest update is that we have had today, as of today, um, just over a million total TV wow. views, and it's been live since the 7th. Wow, that, that's amazing. Yeah, and it, it shows you, in, in my case, I, I filled out all the information. Like I said, it says between July and September, which is kind of mm-hmm. in the ballpark of where I expected for myself. And then it said there are between... Let me see if I got this right. It says there are between 12 million and 22 million people in front of you for the queue. Is that, does that sound right? That sounds right. And, and, yeah. and just to remind um, 
that's not the entire population of Canada. We're almost 28 million. Uh, but if you look down in the calculator, we have an update percentage. And because we know that that, that percentage of 70% was from how many people over age 65 got the flu vaccine last year, and they're oh. also in a high-risk group. So we had to make an estimate of, of how many people maybe don't want the vaccine too. And that's why we're allowing people to change that number as well. Okay, it's, it's very interesting. And um, do you, is this basically just as simply for information purposes? Are you guys, are, are you guys there collecting any information here but, but for, from people who use the calculator? Right. So if you're concerned whether your information is going to be stored, I can tell you it is not. All of the calculations run completely on the users and it's all, it's, um, it's all run on your own computer and none of the information is sent to us. So we don't collect um, any of the data, but we uh, do, we do look at your comments. So if you rate the calculator or leave a comment, we, we will be checking up on those. Okay, that's very interesting. Speaking to Jasmine Ma from Omni Calculator, she's one of the uh, web content developers here on this uh, interesting COVID nineteen calculator uh, online. Uh, why do you think this is so popular? I mean, what do you what what kind of feedback are you hearing from people who use the calculator? I mean, a lot of people out there just say, "When am I going to get this shot?" and they're looking for information. Yeah, I mean, ever since we heard the vaccine started to get approved at the end of last year. Um, it's on all of our minds. When are we next? When's our turn? And, and there has been a lot of information coming out from the governments, but um, we thought we'd make something that was easy to use and easy to understand. And also, we're going to try to be uh, updating and, and providing links to where you can find more information from your local health authorities to get the most up-to-date information. Yeah, that's important, too, that people get the information directly from, from government and health authorities so they can know exactly what's going on. But there, there is a lot, you know, mis, not misinformation, but I guess a lack of hard information out there for people who yeah. are wondering, when am I going to get this shot? Especially if you've got like an elderly parent or maybe you have a, a loved one in, in a care home or something like mm-hmm. that, like that affects the, mm-hmm. the, the vaccine rollout time, right? Like, let's say you've got like your, you have a grandparent or a parent who are in their, in their 90s, for example, yeah. like that, that's factored into the calculator. It is. And, and I just want to point out that the calculator is based on the national guideline and they are just a guideline. Every yeah. province and territory is going to be interpreting those guidelines and sometimes be interpreted differently. Um, so say, yeah, you have an elderly parent and they're over 70. In British Columbia, for example, uh, they've actually specified that it's over 80 years old for, for their first stage of rollout. Whereas in Ontario, they've also said that over seven years old in the general public, they're in stage two. So, so mm. that's why um, you really need to go to the local health authorities. And, and it's important to get your information directly from them for the best information possible. Okay, it's very interesting stuff. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Thanks so much, Mike.